first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Now, you actually know what this episode is all about this time, Marin. Do I? Because we've chatted about it when deciding who is going to tell this story. Okay, I think I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, it's all about a technique. Perhaps you could even say a technology, a biotechnology that was, that continues to be, truly revolutionary. A technique that hundreds of thousands of microbiologists... Hey, that's me. ...rely on daily. I know you use it in the lab. Yeah. It's something that I had heard of, but I did physics and chemistry and history of science at uni, so I'd never really crossed paths with it firsthand. I didn't know how it works. I didn't know how powerful it is. So I've been scouring the textbooks, and by that I mean watching lots of YouTube. Uh, I've been getting into more and more of the detail of this thing. This thing that goes by three letters, P-C-R. Polymerase chain reaction. Now, you, Marin, of course, know all about PCR. You know how it essentially uses something made by bacteria that once hung out at a hot spring in Yellowstone National Park. Love those extremophiles. They've given us so much and they get so little credit. How that thing grabs tiny building blocks of life and slots them together following this, like, tiny building plan. And it's so wild because it's doing all of this and you know that it's happening in this test tube full of like 10 microliters of fluid, but you can't see it. So you just have to imagine this incredible proliferation of the building blocks of life. The fact that you can start with one little bit of DNA and in a few hours make billions of copies of it. I cannot wait to get into this beautiful little microcosm. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And also it allows you to do incredible things like test for the virus that causes COVID-19. Pretty important stuff. To help me, you put me in touch with one of the lecturers on the master's course that you're studying. David, my fave. Hi, my name is Dr. David Allen. I'm an associate professor of virology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He is amazing. I know. I really love him. And I'm not just saying that because I want him to give me a good grade on my exams. He is a fantastic lecture and an amazing, incredibly talented virologist. PCR is one of the cornerstone technologies that we use every day in our laboratory. I'm going to, of course, tell you all about the history of the development of PCR, because that is what we do here. But of course, and this is the part that I don't know. Like, I know how PCR works and I know how we use it, but I have no idea how we got to this point where we can use it to do all of these amazing things. Boy, oh boy, we have got some stuff to discuss. This is a controversial one, right? Wait, no, I did not know that. That's crazy because this feels like such a mundane, everyday thing. Like, it's cool. It's very neat. It's a super cool concept. But it's such a day-to-day activity that you're just doing all the time. They're like, oh, yeah, PCR. Oh, no. But there's, like, drama? Things have been said, right? And I'm afraid it's another example of someone who got the Nobel Prize then starting to talk about some rather questionable scientific ideas. I'll get to that. But first... Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people. I'm Marin Hunsberger. 
I'm Greg Foote, and for this episode, I am indeed the storyteller, although I feel that you're going to be my expert reporter on the ground with PCR. I will try to be as as helpful as possible. I'll be your sous chef for this story, Greg. Let's do it. So here's my plan. We're going to start with a brief dip into PCR. Just put the toe in to test the temperature, that sort of thing. Then we're going to jump in and do a couple of lengths of the history, see who the people were who laid the groundwork for PCR's discovery. Then we'll dive down further into more of the details of PCR. Eventually, we'll reach the use of it for COVID-19 testing. Sound good? Oh, heck yeah. The whole way. I also love that you've been using the swimming metaphor because I keep picturing us swimming in the gel that we sometimes use to visualize the results from a PCR. For some reason, like it just looks so tempting. Like you either want to eat it with a spoon or you want to like put your hand in it. And none of those things are recommended. (laughs) Microbiologist, everybody. Forbidden (laughs) jello. Right, let's start with David telling us what PCR is and what it's used for. It's sometimes called molecular photocopying. It gives us a way of copying particular sequences of DNA. DNA is often present in very low amounts, so being able to amplify to lots of copies and increase the number of it means we can detect that amount of DNA very easily. Okay, so PCR is a technique that copies or amplifies a particular bit of DNA. DNA being the instruction manual for life that sits all wound up inside most of the trillions of the cells in our body. But why would researchers want to amplify a tiny sequence of DNA? There's a lot of different applications for PCR. Some of them are in the medical field, so we can use them for looking at patient genetics to understand what diseases they might have. We use them, particularly in my line of work, in infectious diseases science, so we can detect microorganisms by PCR to understand what infections people have, but also help understand what treatments might be available and how we might use those treatments. Yeah, so we've explored PCR like in my laboratories. Obviously, I'm, I'm on a much more introductory level than David is, but we simulate what it would be like to be in like a diagnostics lab where you're given a pathogen, somebody's sick, here are their symptoms, here's a sample, you don't know what they have, how do you figure out what their disease is? And there's like a whole battery of tests tests you can run depending on if it's a bacterium or a virus, but PCR is a really big important part of that. And of course, these microorganisms are flipping tiny, like nanoscale, microscale, so the amount of information you're going to get from that sample is really, 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 really small. So how do you make it bigger so you can tell what it is? Exactly. But the uses of PCR go beyond that. So Forensic science uses PCR, particularly in looking at criminal cases or understanding crime scene investigations. I found this really cool. Like if investigators find a sample of DNA at a crime scene, then they need to be able to analyse it. Yeah. So for that, they're going to need more than that tiny amount that they found on like a weapon or a car door. They need to copy it. They need to amplify it. So they use PCR. Totally. And the fact that they can do the same for archaeological specimens, <gasps> like a mammoth. Love that. Or an Egyptian mummy. Oh my gosh, it's like an Indiana Jones adventure, like archaeology, paleontology, but on the micro scale with DNA, with genetic material. Yeah, exactly. It's all about creating enough copies of that small bit of DNA to be able to do something with. And I'm going to get to how you actually make those millions, billions of copies of DNA later in the podcast. What I want to do is I want to lay the foundations for it first. I want to introduce the techniques that develop and come together in PCR. The story starts with the understanding of the structure of DNA. And our first episode of season two goes into that. Coming all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. It tells the story of James Watson and Francis Crick and Rosalind Franklin and Ray Gosling and Maurice Wilkins and others. The people who figured out that DNA is essentially a very small twisted ladder. 
yeah, it's bonded base pairs or basically just like molecules down the sides horizontally with rungs across the middle, like a ladder, all twisted up together and coiled inside in us, in, in eukaryotic species, inside your chromosomes. Yeah, what she said. Um, <laughs> the thing is, we've already heard that having lots of copies of DNA is super useful. So how did researchers go about amplifying, copying it before PCR? Ooh, okay. Mm, I don't know, but my guess is you just kind of have, you have to like put it into a cell and then wait for the cells to replicate on their own like that. And that timeline is like, God, you have to wait forever, right? It's all about bacteria. Heck yeah. God, music to my ears, Greg. Yeah, I chatted to David about how you can use bacteria to clone your target DNA. That can be put into the bacteria. And the bacteria recognize this as part of their own biochemistry, part of their own biology. And they will then copy that part of their own replication cycle. We can use biochemical processes in the lab to purify that DNA. Super clever. And bacteria are a really important part of this story, especially the bacterium that was found by Thomas Brock at Yellowstone National Park in America. The unique thing about this bacteria is it lived at very high temperatures in the hot springs in Yellowstone. You wouldn't think many things live there. It's hot, it's salty, it's not a pleasant place to live. But it turns out that there are microorganisms that are specially adapted to living in these environments. This bacteria became known as Thermus aquaticus. And it was interesting because it was a bacteria, a life form that could exist at very extreme temperature conditions. So I'm lucky enough to have actually been to Yellowstone, Greg, and I've seen these pools where these extremophiles are organisms that love extreme environments where they live. And in Yellowstone, they're in these boiling pools of natural hot spring water, and they're just these super beautiful, vibrant colors being produced by the bacteria that live in there. It's so cool. I love the name Thermus aquaticus. Aquaticus meaning they live in water. Thermus being, yeah, extremophiles, like you said. And Thermus is, is Greek for hot. And these bacteria, these Thermus aquaticus, they make something called a polymerase, which is a, a type of enzyme. As we'll see, it makes chains of molecules oh. and it quickly gets a nickname, TAC polymerase, T-A-Q, as a shortened version of Thermus aquaticus. Oh, that's where the word TAC comes from. Wait, that's so cool. I love knowing this because it's on all of my lab sheets. Like you have to have this amount of this, and this amount of this, this amount of TAC polymerase. That's what TAC stands for. Oh, you just blew my mind. <laughs> this makes sense. This makes sense. And the key thing about this TAC polymerase is that it doesn't break down in a hot environment, which as we'll see later, DNA does. Okay, Thomas Brock, I should just mention before we move on, really interesting career and life. He got interested in chemistry after getting a basic chemistry set for Christmas as a kid, same as me. He wanted to go study chemistry at university. World War II got in the way. He joined the US Navy and he worked in their electronics program. Then he goes to Ohio State University and studies botany. His specialism is mycology. Mycology? I, I get to take that this term? Mushrooms? Fungi? Yeah. He starts working on antibiotics at Michigan and essentially teaches himself microbiology. Teaches it to himself? What a guy. Jeez Louise, I'm having a hard enough time doing it in school with somebody else teaching me. He isolates at Thermus aquaticus in 1969. He's now retired. He's got another heat-loving bacteria species named after him that you can keep your eye open for. It's called Thermoanaerobacter brocchi. Well done on the pronunciation. That one's tough. I think I've definitely seen that on a lecture slide, and I love that I know who it's named after. I need to introduce you to two other people now, though. Firstly, Hargobind Karana. Karana was born in Punjab, today's Pakistan. He studied in Liverpool, then Zurich, and then moves to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, USA. 
He does some brilliant early work into the building blocks that make up DNA, what we call nucleotides, and also short strings of those nucleotide building blocks joined together. That's what we call an oligonucleotide. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. Oligonucleotide. Okay, so that's like a long chain of a bunch of base pairs together. But it's not both sides of the ladder. It's just one half. In fact, Hagerbin's work is so brilliant that in 1968, he receives the Nobel Prize for research that is doing expanding our understanding of those nucleotide building blocks in DNA. Okay, so like how DNA is put together. Yeah, he also figures out that those oligonucleotides, those short strands of nucleotides, bind to what's known as their complementary strand. I'm going to let David explain that. So one of the remarkable things about DNA biochemistry is it's based on this recognition of sequence and its complementary sequence. So each part of the DNA, each nucleotide, has a partner pair complementary nucleotide as well. So to make things sort of easy to annotate and easy to think about in the lab, we designate these with four letters, A, C, T, and G. So A will always pair with a T, and C will always pair with a G. Hagerbind Karana realises that if you can design an oligonucleotide that's the opposite of your target sequence, then that could essentially act as a probe, right? If you add it and it binds to the DNA, then its target sequence must be there, right? It's bound with its complementary strand. If it doesn't bind, then the target sequence isn't there. Yes, God, that's so brilliant. What a great idea. And those probes, those specific chains of DNA that are the opposite of your target sequence, they become known as DNA primers uh-huh. because they're later used to prime the PCR reaction and a whole bunch of other DNA synthesis stuff. I love it. Okay, okay. So it's basically like you're making a designer sequence of nucleotides. And if you chuck it into a big bin full of stuff, then if it's attracted to its opposite, kind of like a magnet, right? Polar opposites attract. If it's attracted to its opposite and it binds to it, you'll be able to find it. And if it doesn't bind to it, then the thing's not there. Spot on. And at the time when Hagerbind is awarded his Nobel Prize and working on all this, he's joined by a postdoc, Kjell Lepe a Norwegian-born enzymologist. And together, they turn their attention to Thomas Brock's Yellowstone Park TAC polymerase. Okay, that enzyme that was like chilling in its bacterial host in a pond in Yellowstone, and we can take that enzyme out and have it do what we want it to in a lab. Yes, although it wasn't chilling because it was pretty warm in there. (laughs) It was boiling. (laughs) Kepe was a researcher in Karana's lab, and they did some of the early work on looking at how we might use these enzymes to amplify DNA they realise that TAC polymerase can build long strands of molecules. It's like a little helper, like stringing pearls together, but the pearls are nucleotides, right? (laughs) Yeah. This early technology on being able to synthesise sequences of DNA in the laboratory was really revolutionary, and the ability to build increasingly long fragments of DNA in a biochemical process rather than relying on a an organism or a life form to make DNA was really one of the the cornerstone discoveries in leading on to PCR technology. As we discussed, making copies of DNA strands used to be done in bacteria, in vivo, as it's known, in life, in an organism. Now they're doing that in vitro, in glass, in a petri dish or test tube using this TAC polymerase. So with the work of Thomas Brock and colleagues and Hagerbin Karana and Kjell Lepp, we can now do two big things. One, 
copy DNA outside an organism in the lab, and two, make specific chains of oligonucleotides. It's all coming together. Both of these components, the primers and the DNA polymerase, were key pieces of biotechnology that would then go on to lead us to develop the PCR technique. And in fact, in 1971, Karana and Lepe publish a paper that describes the principle of PCR. The paper really was the forerunner of envisioning how this technology would be used to amplify specific sequences of DNA and really focused on the ability to amplify DNA in the laboratory. Karana and Lepe never made their ideas a reality, though, or took that next step to turn it into the revolutionary technique that it became. I shall tell you about the man who did and his rather controversial story mm. after the break. Can't wait. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant and the story of the polymerase chain reaction, a technique, a technology that has been hugely revolutionary in biology, as we shall soon see. Mm. It's time to meet the man who is often referred to as the father of PCR. Do you know who that is, Marin? You know, I... Don't. It's so weird. I use PCR all the time and I have no idea who invented it. Oh, well, it's a man called Kerry Mullis. Is it though? That classic question that we're going to put on a t-shirt. <laughs> so Kerry Mullis, North Carolinan chap, like Thomas Brock, Kerry Mullis gets interested in chemistry as a kid and he pursues that at university, first with a BSc from the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta and then a PhD in biochemistry at the University of California, Berkeley. Oh, my fave. Right next to home. Kerry gets quite the reputation at Berkeley for his chemistry, specifically his skills in synthesising psychoactive drugs. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean... Berkeley's a pretty good place for that in those days. Well, and still today, to be honest. Okay, have a read of this from his memoir. Here you go. Oh, I'm so ready. Okay, so first of all, the name of this book is fantastic. It's called Dancing Naked in the Mind Field. And he says, I had read a lot about astrophysics and had taken some psychoactive drugs, which enhanced my perceived understanding of the cosmos. <laughs> Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, when he's 22, he writes an article to the prestigious journal Nature, describing, in his words, I quote, the entire universe from beginning to end. What a claim. It's title, The Cosmological Significance of Time Reversal. And in it, he tries to explain the apparent overthrow of parity in the long-lived Kaon experiments, which suggest the possibility of an unseen component of the universe in which matter was of opposite time sense to that in the observable universe. What do you think? I feel like my eyeballs just did that swirling <laughs> vortex thing that they do in, in cartoons when somebody's being hypnotized. What is going on, Greg? This guy has his PhD in biochemistry. The question here is, do nature publish it? The answer is yes. It's there in the 1968 edition. What? Does it have any like actual physics grounding? I don't know, right? I've got another bit for you to read. This is from the end of his thesis, from the conclusion. The deep mysteries of the cosmos are at last within our grasp. The question we must ask ourselves is whether or not we should go further. Perhaps there are organisms with other iron-binding agents on other planets. Nuclear magnetic resonances waiting. <laughs> Will they escape the prying fingers and prurient eyes of the two-legged mammal? Man, this guy is like on another plane of existence. It looks like he makes some uh, effective psychoactive drugs, but a colleague of his actually says, quote, he didn't know general biochemistry. 
And apparently his dissertation thesis is only accepted after several buddies pitch in to, quote, cut all the wacko stuff out of it. Like, literally, quote, cut the wacko stuff out of it. This guy is yep. out here wildin', not knowing how to do basic biochemistry and making psychoactive drugs. Okay, cool, I guess. And with writing like that, you might not be surprised to hear that after receiving his doctorate in 1972, Kerry Mullis decides to leave science to write fiction. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised about that. Although I will also say, like, it does make me a little bit suspicious that a man who had to have friends help him with the basic biochemistry in his doctoral dissertation is this self-assured, shall we say? He also manages a bakery when he leaves as well. A man of many interests. However, a past classmate of his gets him back into science. Now, while he was at Berkeley, Carey helped repair a broken valve on a young student's VW bug. That classmate is Tom White, and with Tom's help, Carey gets a fellowship at the University of Kansas. He studies first pediatric cardiology. What? This just goes from weird to weirder. This is like such a wild assortment of fields. Yeah, caring for children's hearts, essentially. But he then moves to the University of California, San Francisco, to work in pharmaceutical chemistry. Well, I guess he's got the background. <laughs> yeah, he has. Well, we're now in 1979. And Tom enters the story again. Tom White is working at the Cetus Corporation. It's a biotech company that's making specific novel sequences of DNA using recombination techniques like cloning. Tom actually says in an interview with a Berkeley University paper, quote, I knew Carey was a good chemist because he'd been synthesising hallucinogenic drugs at Berkeley. This was his reputation. <laughs> he doesn't have much experience in molecular biology, but... He can make great drugs. Let's give him a go. So he starts making oligonucleotides, those short chains for other scientists. And over the next few years, he moves up the ranks. And he soon becomes the head of DNA synthesis. What? Tom is now the company's director of molecular and biological research. And then one Friday night in April 1983. I think the story goes that the idea came to him driving down a highway. Yes, and this is Kerry Mullis' own story, I should add, okay, from when he told it in an article that he wrote for Scientific American seven years later. Uh, here you go, you have a read. Okay, so this is his retelling of the Eureka moment. I'm in my car driving along a moonlit mountain road into Northern California's Redwood country. This is when the idea comes to me. I'm playing in my mind with a new way of analyzing mutations in DNA and suddenly realize that I've thought up instead a method of amplifying any DNA region of choice. <laughs> so he's like, well, I was thinking about this, but then I realized I discovered this thing. He even says that before the trip is over, he's savoring prospects of the Nobel Prize. Good Lord, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, Carrie G's Louise. He calls this process he's thought up polymerase chain reaction possibly inspired by the idea of a nuclear chain reaction that starts and then just keeps on going. He eagerly tells his idea to the other scientists at Cetus, who, they're not as excited as he is. <laughs> they're pretty sceptical, probably because he's come up with various other apparently revolutionary ideas in the past that haven't led anywhere. I mean, I don't blame them. This is the guy who ended his doctoral dissertation in biochemistry talking about the uh, exploration of alien life on other worlds, you know? Yeah, he's got opinions about a lot of different things, as we'll see. But anyway, PCI gets to work turning his idea into reality with a colleague, Fred Faluna, and it doesn't go very well. I mean, very few new things in science go perfectly the first time round. 
Tom White, however, does see the potential in this idea. So, still faithful to the guy who helped him fix his VW back in Berkeley, he gives Kerry a final shot. He removes him as the head of the DNA synthesis lab, and he tells him to work full-time on PCR. However, what Tom also does, sneakily, cleverly, is he brings together a group of brilliant researchers completely separately to Carey to see if they can get this PCR technique working. That's interesting. I feel like that shows an understanding on Tom's part that Carey maybe isn't the best team player or like needs to do his own thing and Tom wants to cover all of his bases and bring in like a backup team just in case Carrie like goes out on a limb and can't come back. <laughs> yeah, and that team is led by Henry Ehrlich and Norman Arnheim. It takes him about six months to get some promising experimental results and then working with a man called Randall Psyche who's joined the team, it takes a further two years to refine the reagents and the techniques to reliably make PCR a reality. Yeah, I mean, it takes a long time to come up with something new and then also to get it really right. Okay, but my question is, does Tom White think that he's going to be able to keep this secret from Carrie that these other people are also working on it? And I'm sure Carrie is like not thrilled when he finds out that these other people are working on it and that they're making significant progress. Yeah, because Carrie's, um, his own experimental approach has been hit and miss. Maybe a little more willy-nilly? Yeah. But yeah, when he hears that there's another team and that they've basically done it, understandably, he's pretty annoyed because he thinks that they're going to take the credit for his idea. Actually, Tom White is planning to put Carey as the first author on any paper about this. Regardless, it doesn't happen because Carey spends much of the summer using the computers at Cetus to make fractal pictures rather than doing actual experiments. My man's sister may be a little too much LSD in his time. <laughs> so the first paper on PCR is published by Randall Psyche and others in 1985. Carey Mullis and Fred Faluna are co-authors and it says, quote, the gene segment was amplified by the polymerase chain reaction procedure of Mullis and Faluna. But in the bibliography, it says their paper on it is in preparation. Hmm, it's like a preemptive publishing. And interestingly, when Carrie Mullis does write that paper up, it's rejected by nature and science. So does the original paper still stand up? And like, does anybody buy that original paper being like, well, it's built on these guys' work? And then these guys submit their work and everybody's like, no, it's not. What? <laughs> Good point. Some people say that the reason that Kerry Mullis's paper was rejected was because it was then not seen as new. Yeah, because that other paper was already out. Right, because they, they were basically published kind of like out of order. But other people say that actually it was because Kerry Mullis's paper was too revolutionary, that they didn't trust the practical applications of it. Anyway, it does eventually get published just in a lower ranked journal, The Methods of Enzymology. So I feel like we see this trend again, right? Kerry is the big picture thinker coming up with this idea for the process on his moonlit drive in Northern California. And another team at his same corporation are the ones who actually sort of make it a reality. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's about time we actually said what this revolutionary method of PCR actually is that you and David and many others rely on every day. I feel like we've we've got a couple of components and now we just need to put them all together. I'm going to treat this like a recipe. We're not making a batch of cookies though, sadly. We're making a batch of identical copies of a bit of target DNA, which is just as cool, but just not as tasty. <laughs> not as delicious. What's the first thing you put into your bowl? So we start with a 
a solution that is similar to what you would find in a in a cell. So it's pH balanced and it's salt balanced, and we call this a buffer. Next, you need to add the DNA that you want to amplify. This is the target that we want to make new copies of, and this could be one of a human gene where we want to understand something about the host genetics, or it could be that we're searching for a gene of a pathogen in a, in a sample to detect what virus or what bacterium might be causing an infection. So this is essentially the thing you're looking at to see if it has the thing you're looking for. Beautifully put. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Next up on your ingredients list is DNA primer. That short sequence of nucleotides that you've made or actually likely ordered in that will bind to the start of the target sequence of DNA. You've got Hargobin Karana to thank for that. Right, your designer oligonucleotide. That's it. Then you need to sprinkle in the stuff that you're going to make those copies from. We also use these nucleotides, these individual components of the DNA molecule to build the new strand. Totally, exactly. It's like you can't just make DNA from nothing. So if you want to amplify or make copies of, you have to have the thing that the DNA is made out of, the raw material. And you need a lot of it. And you also need the thing that's going to grab those nucleotide building blocks and assemble them. <gasps> is this our tech polymerase? Sure is. And we have this thermostable, this temperature stable DNA polymerase that actually does the incorporation of the new nucleotides into the newly growing strands. Yeah, that's your heat-resistant TAC polymerase, courtesy of Thomas Brock. Although it's not actually the one that's made by that Yellowstone bacteria, it's a copy that's been made synthetically. And, as Karana and Lepe suggested but never did, that TAC polymerase does something absolutely Blooming incredible. So the DNA polymerase, one of its functions is to bring into the active site of that enzyme where the reaction happens, the template that we want to copy, the increasing length strand that we're building, the new strand of DNA, and these free nucleotides. Now, as these nucleotides come into the binding site, if these aren't complementary, if they don't match, they won't be built into the new strand by the enzyme. But where we bring in that nucleotide that complements the nucleotide that already exists on the template strand, that enzyme will join together the new growing strand and the incoming complementary nucleotide. And that's all the ingredients in. Now it's time to shake it, bake it and chill. Or heat as the case may be. Yes. Once all of these components are in a chest tube together, we simply heat and cool the sample over and over again. This is the process that Kerry Mullis realised and that Henry Ehrlich, Norman Arnheim and Randall Sakey finessed, they perfected. So you start by heating it to around 95 degrees. We heat the sample and that denatures the double strand of DNA that lets us access the sequence. Denatures means that those two strands of DNA separate, leaving you with two single strands with their chemical code exposed for all to see, including the primers which then latch on if the target is there. And that's because, as we discussed, those primers, those short oligonucleotide sequences, are the opposite, the complements to the target. So we end up with a single strand of DNA that is partly double-stranded where these oligonucleotide primers have bound. We then warm the system a little bit further, usually between 65 and 72 degrees Celsius. At this point, the enzyme, the DNA polymerase, becomes biologically active and we allow an incubation period, usually for a minute or two, to allow that DNA polymerase to perform its function by moving along the template, adding one new nucleotide at a time in the sequence. So this is why TAC polymerase is so helpful and so useful and why it had to come from an extremophile because it functions at high temperatures, which a lot of enzymes don't. Yep, exactly. And you know what? After all this, 
Voila, you've made yourself a full copy. Bon appetit. Delicious. However, you're going to need way more than just one copy of your target DNA. So we reheat the system up to 95 degrees. Any double-stranded DNA becomes single-stranded. We then cool back down to a lower temperature to let the primers bind to their template region. And then we warm back up to 72 degrees to let the extension of that template occur again. And we go around this cycle 30 to 40 times. Each of those cycles doubles the number of copies. It's an exponential growth. After 30 cycles, you can make over a billion copies. After 40 cycles, you're looking at over a trillion copies. Incredible and so useful. It's basically like molecular, genetic, select, copy, paste, repeat. (laughs) Pretty awesome, this. I mean, there are actually two important developments when it comes to PCR. That one I've just described is number one. It's the PCR process. Number two is developing an easier way to do it. Because originally researchers would have to do it with a set of water baths and they'd set them at the three temperatures they'd need and scientists would immerse the samples in the water bath for a set amount of time, lift them out, put them in the next one. You've got to do that 30 to 40 times. That's very laborious. That's not sustainable and it doesn't make the technology very user-friendly. And so one of the next parallel major developments was the ability to automate this process. Kerry Mullis designs a machine called a thermocycler that takes a sample through this series of heating and cooling. I have used one. I did not know I had Kerry Mullis to thank. Thermocyclers are basically small metallic heating blocks that have a computer attached to them where you can tell the computer what temperatures you would like the heating block to be at and for how long you'd like those stages to last. They also have sort of a heated lid which prevents your sample evaporating at very high temperatures which is obviously important. And today you would normally add the tubes to the heating block close that lid, set the computer, and then walk away. Hey, Marin, did you know that the first thermocycler had a name? Oh, nice. Tell me what it is. Mr. Cycle. (laughs) Short, sweet, to the point. I've got a photo of it here. This is a photo from the uh, National Museum of American History. I really hope they put googly eyes on it. Oh, no googly eyes. Okay, so it looks like it does what it says on the tin, Mr. Cycle. He cycles the samples, and it's got a cute little sticker on it. It's sort of like rainbow colors, and it says California Dreamin'. Yeah, so from the National Museum of American History description, it says, One side of the housing has a rainbow-colored California Dreamin' sticker. It's not known who applied the sticker to the prototype, but it may be a reference to the location of its creation or the surfer dude personality of the PCR process's inventor. Yeah, I feel like our California Dreamin' sticker sort of fits with uh, what we've learned about Carrie so far. In just a few years after the PCR technology is published, it is used far and wide. The technology technology he developed, including envisioning this system of automating that thermal cycling process, revolutionise the way we think about molecular biology. So what does Kerry Mullis do next? Well, that is perhaps more surprising than it is brilliant, but I will let you draw your own conclusions. Be warned, it gets a little wild and out there. Wilder than it has already, Greg? I shall tell you all and fill you in on the further developments of PCR that make it even more revolutionary and essential during the COVID-19 pandemic, but all that is coming up after the break. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant and the story of PCR. Right now, it's the year 1986 and Kerry Mullis is riding high on the success of the PCR technique. So what does he do? He quits Cetus. 
remarking, quote, I like writing about biology, not doing it. <laughs> so he goes into science communication? Um, no. Kind of the opposite, but I'll get there. The company gives him a $10,000 bonus for them to keep the rights to the idea of PCR, a right that they later sell for $300 million to pharmaceutical company Hoffman LaRoche. Ooh, buddy. Yeah. Quite the price difference. Yeah. Carey goes on to work as a consultant for various institutions and companies, but he spends a lot of time in California surfing, roller skating, playing the guitar, and studying astrology. Astrology, yes. not astronomy. No. So this is like your horoscope, like I'm an Aries because I was born in April astrology. Yeah. He actually says in that memoir that you read a bit of that he was rescued from a fatal accident by a person traveling in an astral plane. Wait. Okay. So this comes back into like the, this man's on a whole nother level. Yep. Okay. Okay. And he says he spoke to an alien disguised as a raccoon. Nice. And, and in 1992, he sets up a business selling pieces of jewellery containing the supposedly amplified DNA of famous dead people, including Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe. Okay, we've gone fully off the deep end. (laughs) Also, wait, this calls back to one of our episodes in season one. Didn't Tesla also claim that he was visited by an alien in like a beam of light who like came into his bedroom at one point? He did, yes. Well remembered. Anyway, after all that, the year after... Kerry Mullis receives the Nobel Prize. Oh my God. What a wild series of events. He's selling is like a homemade jewelry with the DNA of dead people. And the Nobel Prize is like, yeah, yeah. I mean, still important. Important guy. Yeah. 1993, the Nobel Prize in chemistry is awarded to two people for their, quote, contributions to the developments of methods with DNA-based chemistry. Kerry Mullis gets half of that prize for his invention of the polymerase chain reaction method. The other half goes to Michael Smith for his fundamental contributions to the establishment of oligonucleotide-based site-directed mutagenesis and its development for protein studies. Not going into that. So, do you think Kerry Mullis deserves the Nobel? As David says... I think the technology, the technique, uh, is so revolutionary in so many areas. It's a really justified Nobel Prize and deserves the recognition of the advance that made in so many different areas. Totally. I was going to say, like, yeah, okay, PCR may not have happened without some of Kerry's input and some of his ideas, but, like, so many other people were involved in making it happen. Yeah, I discussed this further with David. Kerry Mullis' role here was bringing together a lot of these technologies and developments that had emerged over the 1960s, 1970s into a process, the process that we now understand and think of as polymerase chain reaction or PCR. Yeah, I mean, if we go all the way back to Thomas Brock finding the thing that makes TAC polymerase in Yellowstone, to Hargobind, who let us actually make oligonucleotides, Kiel Lepe, all of these other folks who were involved that we've met on, on the journey we've gone on today. Although it's worth mentioning that many of these people who were involved in the forerunning technology also shared Nobel Prizes themselves. That is a really good point. Now, before I turn to PCR's role in COVID testing and some really interesting extra science and steps to the PCR technique that's been added to enable that testing, let me just finish the Kerry Mullis part of this story. Oh man, Kerry's story doesn't end there. Yeah, I mentioned those beliefs in astrology and that's it's not the half of it. I don't really know where to start. Um, he talks about being sceptical of the hole in the ozone layer. 
Okay. He says he disputes the arguments that chlorofluorocarbons are depleting the ozone layer and that industrial emissions are causing the climate to get hotter. Yes, he is a climate change denier. (sighs) And then, 1994, the year after he receives the Nobel Prize, he's booked to give a lecture at a medical society conference in Toledo in Spain. The president of the society, Dr John F. Martin, remarking, quote, his only slides were photographs he had taken of naked women with coloured lights projected on their bodies. Oh no. Oh no. Okay, now we've fully gone off the deep end. I thought we were there. No, this is it. Let me actually mention a reporter, Emily Yoffa, who described how when she was in Kerry Mullis's apartment interviewing him, he grabbed her by the neck and tried to forcibly kiss her. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. That's horrible. That's so disgusting. That's so awful. I hate that. I hate that a lot. I hate that a lot. Ugh. Yep, back to that lecture, the year after his Nobel Prize, uh, the president of that society also said, quote, Just before the lecture, he told me he would not speak about PCR, but would tell his ideas about AIDS not being caused by the HIV virus. Oh my god. Yes, he's also an HIV denier. Okay, this has all gone terribly wrong. He just has like, fried his brain beyond the point of repair or something. He's saying this in the mid to late 1990s, when South Africa is in the middle of a catastrophic AIDS epidemic. The president is under the spell of AIDS denialists, including the likes of Mullis, and he declares that AIDS is caused by poverty, not HIV. He denies countless South Africans' treatment. In fact, a later study estimates that as a result, 35,000 babies were born with HIV. 330,000 South Africans unnecessarily died of AIDS. So not only is he traumatizing people by exposing them non-consensually to pornographic images, he's also violently sexually assaulting journalists and is pretty directly responsible for the deaths of thousands and thousands and thousands of people due to the mismanagement of a disease. Yeah, this is sounding awfully familiar, Greg. And here's the thing, the, the, the part that makes my skin crawl the most is that he had the power and the authority to do this and had respect from other people because of the way he was celebrated by the scientific community. Yeah. Um, when Tom White, his friend at Cetus, was asked about this in an interview, he replied, quote, I'll never forgive him for that. Good. Nobody should. Now, some authors have used the term Nobel disease or Nobelitis to describe the tendency apparently seen in some Nobel winners to then support these scientifically questionable, or plain wrong, ideas. Albert Einstein endorsed a psychic called Gene Dennis. James Watson, who we talked about in the first episode of season two, said a whole bunch of things, including comments about obese people and some rather racist comments about intelligence, as did William Shockley, who received the Nobel Prize for inventing the transistor. So they they feel like they've been celebrated for their good deeds and for their brain, and now they can say whatever they want. Yeah, it's not cool, is it? A fellow Nobel laureate, Randy Sheckman, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2013, he made a bet with one of the other laureates that year that Mullis would be the only American Nobel Prize winner to never be elected to the National Academy of Sciences. Kerry Mullis died in August 2019, so it looks like Randy can collect his bet. And he didn't mince his words, right? Randy called Kerry's Nobel a complete fluke. Quote, he's the molecular biology equivalent of Donald Trump in terms of his personal behaviour. 
That's an excellent comparison. And it does make you question, I think, this idea that people who are recognized by a scientific establishment must just inherently be geniuses or brilliant or write about everything or just, you know, a cut above the rest in terms of intelligence. Like sometimes these things happen, yes, because of a fluke. But also I would go further and say that the fact that some of our most celebrated figures in STEM have, <laughs> after being celebrated, proved themselves to be not worth that respect shows us that we have an issue in science, that people are allowed to make it to the top or have been, especially in the past, who have gotten there maybe not for the right reasons. And the fact that they are who we have to celebrate is indicative of the fact that like a lot of people are being left behind. I'm going to leave Kerry Mullis' story there. We're going to return to the story of PCR. We've mentioned how PCR is super powerful to test for specific viruses, like SARS-CoV-2, which is causing COVID-19. PCR has been revolutionary because it lets us detect small amounts of nucleic acid in samples and lets us see this signal, perhaps of a microorganism, um, in, a, in a specimen. But there's a real challenge here. If you take a swab of the inside of someone's cheek or their nose, as you do with COVID, what basically feels like you're getting your brain tickled, yes, you may get some of that virus if they are indeed infected, but you're going to get way more of their own cells. And a bacteria and gunk. There's a bunch of stuff going on in there. Finding the pathogen amongst all of that other nucleic acid is fairly described, I think, as looking for a needle in a haystack. What PCR does is it gives us to keep the analogy, basically a giant magnet that will pull that needle out of the hay. Because the PCR is so specific and you have this ability to exponentially amplify the DNA, we can find these tiny amounts of microorganisms, nucleic acid, in the midst of a very complicated sample from a person. So PCR then led us down a new field of molecular diagnostics where we could use PCR to search for the genomes of viruses, bacteria or parasites as part of understanding infectious diseases and understanding what infections may be making a person sick. Isn't he so great? He does such a good job explaining things. This is what it's like having David in, in lecture. He was awesome. R yeah, awesome. One place that, of course, this has been really powerful is with COVID, especially with a more recent development, which enables researchers to see when the virus is present and how much of it is there while they're actually doing the PCR, as they're running the tests or the assays, as they're also called. More recent developments have let us attach a fluorescent marker to the new strands of nucleic acid. And this has led us to something we call real-time quantitative PCR, because we can measure how much of this fluorescence is produced. That gives us a quantitative read of how much DNA is there. Glow-in-the-dark microbial detective work. My fave. Amazing. This real-time quantitative PCR, yeah, it lets you detect and count really subtle amounts of virus really early, though before someone can actually show symptoms. Something that's been super helpful with COVID. And another thing that's been helpful with COVID as well, and it's been one of the really positive things throughout this pandemic, one of the few, I guess, uh, that's the sharing of knowledge across borders. This set of primers and the sequences and the conditions that we use to run the SARS-CoV-2 specific assays were shared with laboratories around the world, which meant laboratories could very quickly adopt these tests and techniques 
to be able to provide diagnostics for different sample types in countries around the world very quickly. Totally. I think it's such a beautiful example of like when we really need to, the scientific community can come together to share resources and make advancements for the good of everyone, not just us versus them versus them versus them. I think too, it's a really good time to highlight that like PCR is so powerful, like we've been talking about, but it's also really expensive. And so who in what country and what facility gets to have it and if it's available in certain places is really dependent on funding and resources. Yeah, there's another technological development that has kind of helped in that way. It's the ability to modify the PCR process to work out in the field. I was reading that researchers have developed an enzyme that could perform that amplification at a single low temperature. This means we can take those tests to less resourced environments. And these types of technology are revolutionizing diagnostic science in low and middle income countries where perhaps there isn't the cold chain to keep minus 80 freezers going to store the reagents. Beautiful. So, yeah, I feel we should probably finish this PCR loving now. I've really enjoyed learning about it. It's so cool. What it actually is, what it can do. And obviously, I should note, we haven't even gone into how SARS-CoV-2 is RNA-based, not DNA-based. So PCR has had to be modified for that. So much cool stuff we could discuss. We could go on and on and on. It's just awesome. And it's been so cool to learn way more about the nitty gritty of how it all works as opposed to just sort of like running it and doing it. I think I'm going to give David the last word. We were discussing how incredibly powerful PCR is. We were discussing how these modifications and tweaks have kind of built on it and made it more and more powerful. And he said something that I think just puts it so well. The technique itself has been utterly revolutionary, but it continues to be revolutionized as we have breakthroughs in biochemistry, in commercialization of resources, but also in terms of engineering, computer science, optics. All of these things are working together to change the way we do and use PCR for the future. I think that's one of my favorite things about this podcast, Greg, is we get to talk about events like this where things were invented that changed the way we do and think about everything. And then to get to think that that's still happening and that, you know, in 20 years, 30 years, somebody else will be telling stories like this about something that's being invented today by people we know. Well, that could be you, couldn't it? Oh, God. You're studying it. (laughs) Greg, that's so much pressure. I mean, never say never, but it would definitely be never just me, as we always see, me and many other people. true that right it's time to say our thank yous and our goodbyes big thanks to dr david allen associate professor of virology at london school of hygiene and tropical medicine for his time helping me get to grips with pcr and for being an awesome lecturer thanks for teaching us so much david we love you If you, listener, enjoyed this episode as much as I did, then please do rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also, please do spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant to anyone you think may enjoy this episode or any of the episodes so far. We have more episodes on their way for this season, so subscribe to catch them. And if you have a story from science history that you want us to tell, a discovery, an invention, a person you want to know the story behind, then you can email us, brilliant at seeker.com. And if you'd like to get in touch on social... Marin Hunsberger goes by at Marin B B E A on Instagram at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter. And that there is Greg Foote, who is at Greg Foote on both Twitter and Instagram. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. This episode was written by me, Greg Foote. My co-host is Marin Hunsberger and our producer was Katerina Kropschaffer. This episode was edited by Lucas Bollinger. We had support from the team at Seeker, including Caroline Roth, Jessica Young, Megan Bates, and Megan Fu, and from the Group 9 podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld. The show's executive producers are me, Marin, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hatagadur. And you can find out more about Seeker at seeker.com. We'll chat to you in the next one. See ya.